If life's a mystery, who done it? Welcome to Ye Gods. I'm Scott Carter. Recently, our guest was author and translator Stephen Mitchell. I like to think of him and his equally accomplished wife as a spiritual power couple, and today we'll meet the other half. Byron Kathleen Mitchell, henceforth Katie, in her first book, Loving What Is, introduced to the world what she calls the work, which she claims can bring an end to suffering. Katie's work uses four questions to examine what vexes us. Is it true? Can you really know that it's true? What happens when you believe that thought? And who would you be without it? Then come turnarounds in which you consider your answers from alternate points of view. Katie teaches that the ego, which she defines as our perceived need to protect our identity, causes our negative thought loops. And so by probing the truth of our thoughts and having compassion for others and ourselves, we may interrupt that flow of rationalization which the ego provides to justify our hurting others or torturing ourselves. Katie's subsequent bestsellers, including A Thousand Names for Joy and I Need Your Love, Is That True?, as well as her global workshops, have lightened life's burdens for millions. And I can say personally that her work helps me, in Tom Stoppard's phrase, to become stark, raving sane. Katie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Scott. I met you when Stephen did a book signing at Vroman's in Pasadena for Gilgamesh. Think about how long ago that was. And this morning, for the very first time, I participated in one of your live streamings that you do. Whenever I reacquaint myself with you and your work, some new thing leaps out of me. One of the things this morning that leapt out of me, number one, how much courage everybody who brings their issues to you, they are really establishing a vulnerability And I am always amazed at how lovingly you both hear their pain, but gently bring them to the truth that is going to be what heals them. And I thought to myself this morning, I made a note, it's like we all are our own kidnappers and you are a hostage negotiator. Oh, very good. I was also struck by you made references to the dream that we often live our lives in. And so many people aspire to be living in a dream. And yet what you reveal is how actually that's a cage. Can you talk about that? You know, life is a dream. It's a dream. And if we run into a nightmare, why don't we question it? It is a dream. For example, I'll say a word, and then you'll see the dream attach. Like, I'll say the word lemon, and you just saw it in your mind's eye. It's a dream. It's not a lemon. So to know the difference is to be awake to life as opposed to seeing it as a drudgery, as opposed to seeing seeing it through the eyes of fear, or what we would say, the eyes of the ego, allowing it to be 
what it is. It's not tricky. It's simply a lemon. One of the things that you said this morning is that we are born pure, but then we enter the world of the ego. Yeah, we don't do it on purpose. It's a happening. In other words, someone says something, we feel hurt or resentful or jealous. We experience jealousy. Whatever it is, that's painful. So what can we do? We can go back like children. We can identify what we're thinking and believing in that nightmare. Move those thoughts from our head to paper. And there they are. They're, they're brought into the apparent physical world. So then we can question them. And questioning them, which is what I invite the world to do, it takes stillness. It takes a very open mind and a lot of tears sometimes. But it wakes us up from the dream. Often um, you will refer to God as reality because you say reality rules. Um, I want to give some context for people who may be introduced to you for the first time that you had been in 1986 in a 10-year downward spiral when you were living in a world that you talk about people thinking that you were a threat to them, uh, that your, your adult children thinking that you're yelling at them all the time, that, um, that, that just a miserable existence. You're staying in your room. You're not going out. I think you've said you became agoraphobic. Whenever I go back over this origin story, I think that it's like you got a consciousness transplant. When you wake up with this new consciousness by which it's almost like the child consciousness that you just described, you didn't know what an apple was. You didn't know what a Katie was. And it's almost like you went back, you were sort of Adam and Eve in a garden having to name everything and become acquainted with everything for the, the first time. And wh where did you get the wisdom? Well, you know, I was fast asleep. It's in a, a, a dead sleep on the floor. And I opened my eyes, and before the ego could take up the space, I saw how the world was created, and it looked like nothing and then I saw light coming through a window. So now I had light and window, and I watched my ego naming ceiling, walls. And it had a name for everything, and then that first sound out of me was laughter. I just saw that, like light, and then the window, that the thoughts inside me were the same. I saw how my world was created. I saw, and there was no way I could believe it once I had seen the creation of the ego and that it isn't necessary to attach to beliefs, but to understand the mind, not to be at war with it. Something very strong within you told you that you have to stay with this new state of mind that wasn't causing you the same pain you'd been in before you went to sleep that night before. Yeah. I knew how to mother myself, going from stark raving mad to calm and aware with 
this um, love of this gift I've been given, which is the world. It is all there is to love. It's a reflection of of what is beautiful, you know, symbols of what is beautiful. And and reading my children, they go, hi, mom, and just pours out of me this mothering. And meeting your grown children as your children for the very first time is, oh my goodness. And that is, that is still my experience today. Every time I see them, it's the first time. I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by what they say and what they do and their, their expressions and their, oh, their complaints and their, their cleverness and their love of their children and all of Scott, what is not to love other than what the ego offers up when someone is filled with, let's say, hate. How do I react toward that person in the world and myself when I believe the thought they're full of hatred? You know, it's nothing more than me being out of touch. There, There's something wrong with them. There's something right with them. And just find one good thing. And it doesn't mean they're right. It doesn't mean I'm not going to oppose it. But I understand. And vote. You know, what we're thinking and believing is always a vote. Are we voting, you know, is it war or is it peace? And if I'm at war with anyone or anything, it's war. War is war. And the ego can justify it right away, but war is war. And the effect is pain. But I don't invite people to believe me ever. I don't even expect it. But I certainly want to invite them to sit with themselves and identify the cause of their pain and move it from their head to paper and question it with an open mind. And even that is a big ask, because when we are sure we're right and the ego offers up all the justification, why would I write that down? You say that that we have three kinds of experience in the world. There is our business, your business, and God's business. Could you explain that to people? What I'm thinking and believing is my business. What other people are thinking and believing about me or themselves or the world, that's their business. That's, those are their thoughts. Even when they're sharing them with me, those are their thoughts, like property, that's their property. I have mine, they have theirs. And that's what I'm thinking about them. That's my business. And God's business is um, just God's business. God's business to to me is um, creation. And it's the trees and the sky and everyone without a limit. Right. I have watched you work with dozens, if not hundreds of people. Um, They can be in turmoil when they begin. I have never seen them not end with the smiles start creeping in. Very often they start laughing when you have them read something they wrote down just a little while before on their worksheet where they're describing the issue they they want to discuss. It now seems ridiculous to them. And these are all people who have come to you willingly and have at least some sense of what they might get out of the experience. So it's not like you are doing this with people against their will. 
No, in fact, we only work with what they bring to it in writing. It's the worksheet they bring to to me. That's what we work with. And that is what they were thinking and believing in a specific situation. And it really is the truth that sets them free, but it's their own as we sit in these. You know, I present four questions. Could you explain the four questions and the turnarounds and some of the basic concepts of the work? The first question I ask is, is it true? For example, my parents don't love me. Is it true? In that situation, you're nine years old, you're so angry, out of control, you don't want to go to camp, they insist, be there now, they don't love you. Now get in touch, look at them, you can see them in your mind's eye, they don't love you. Is it true? And yes, they're saying what they said, and yes, they're doing what they're doing, and slow down, get still, listen. They don't love you. Is it true? And the next question is, notice how you react. What happens when you believe the thought they don't love you? Now, that's a big question. How do you react? It's like, what are the images of past and future? Get in touch with those. What are the what is the um, emotional experience? Emotionally feel what that feels like. Get in touch with it. And even filling in these worksheets, you get in touch with it. It just, you know, it's a big ask to ask people to, to go inside that tornado and identify what they were thinking and believing. The ego doesn't want it. You know, it's, it is in direct opposition to what the ego offered up at the time. So then that fourth question is just be there now. Don't change a thing. Just who would you be without the thought? My parents don't love me. Who would you be without the thought they don't love you? And so they drop those images of past future that leaves them in the present. It leaves them open to listen to the parents' words in a whole different, to see them as they were, to hear them as they were. And then when we turn around, my parents don't love me. My parents do love me. Well, what did you see? And then they speak it out loud. And it shifts identity. And it shifts the way he sees his parents today. That transformation always occurs within them. You're always able to keep going until they get to that place. When they themselves question that, I offer the questions, but the answers are theirs without prompting from me. I just ask the questions, and their answers are what set them free. So really, I'm nothing more than a I'm walking question mark as a friend. I think you have said, and Stephen has said, that the most common criticism that people will have ahead of time is, how could the truth be so simple? Yeah, it's, um, it's, um, you wouldn't think that that we'd be so out of touch with that. But the ego's job is to identify and keep us out of touch with that. So these four questions give us opportunity to tap into that wisdom. That's why it hurts when we are in our egos. We're out of contact with what, who and how we are by nature. So these questions allow us to drop into that pool 
And it takes an, a quiet mind to ask the questions authentically. Like, for example, she doesn't care about me. And I'd ask the question, is it true in that situation with her when she said what she said and did what she did, that she doesn't care about me? Is it true? And then just to get still and allow this thing I'm pointing to, this to be an honest yes or no, whether it's a yes or no, it's not going to offer up a bunch of feel good. But then you move to the next question. How do I react? What happens when I believe the thought she doesn't care about me? That person, when she said, go away, I hate you. you know? And how do I react when I believe the thought she doesn't care about me? So now we're into what we might refer to as pain dirt. And now I ask, and then who would I be without the thought she doesn't care about me? And now I'm present to go back, close my eyes and look at her face and look at her body language just as she was, not to change anything, just to look at her without my story. She doesn't care about me. She hurt me. And compassion happens. It happens. And I'm just left with, my goodness, if I believed about me what she believes about me, how could I not feel the same way about me? So turned around, I don't like her. Okay. In that situation, you know, where does that show up again? Well, I named it. You know, I, I slander her. I talk about her. I blame her for hurting me. She hurt me. Turned around. She doesn't, she doesn't like me. Turned around. I don't like me. When I looked at how I react, when I believed the thought, I don't like me. And I noticed that's where my defense comes from. All the stones I throw at her. You know, it's, I just don't know another way. That's the ego at work. And that is not a good life. That is not a good life. So I'm the offender. These states are mine when we can't do something with our heads, with what we're thinking and believing, we'll do just about anything. We're angry, we're hurt, we blame, and then that just compounds our addictions. And how do we make it stop? You, you can use the term ego. A lot of people I know who will dismiss religion as saying, I don't believe in an old man with a white beard in the sky, will also mock the metaphor to me, of a satanic influence uh, of the devil. You need not believe in um, a red entity with a pointy tail and a pitchfork to want to codify or to summarize this force that's in us. And this is a shamanic tradition of call it a name. So, in other words, I don't laugh when people talk about the devil, that I know that um, for people, let's say, who, are, who have been in Alcoholics Anonymous, that they still, on a daily basis maybe, have that tempting voice. Well, that's a voice that's in them. You can have just one drink. Why don't you go back to it? Ego offers that up. You know, you can just have just one more drink. 
I would thank it for sharing and get serious and sit down with it. It's like I can have one more drink. Is it true? Hmm. Let's see, what is my experience? What is my history? And then the answer will be either yes or no. And then notice how you react when you believe the thought, I can have just one more drink. If you want to see some history, there it is. I mean, the, the things we say and do to the people we love most in the world, the, the, the difficulty getting out of bed in the morning, the hangover, the, I mean, on and on and on. When you sit in that question, how do you react when you believe the thought? Well, I take the drink. Well, that's not enough. But if you get really still in it, who, who would you be without the thought? You know, who would you be if you didn't believe I can have another drink? Okay, who am I without the thought? Because there are some moments I'm not thinking it. Okay, what are they? So you go back and do, and it starts like, how often do you think it? Well, all the time. Well, no, this space, this space, this space. When I'm doing that, I'm not thinking it. But it's just about sitting in your integrity, getting real, and 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 questioning the thought, I can have just one more drink. And when you turned around, I can't have just one more drink. And you ponder that. And then that's a whole worksheet, which is um, six questions on a worksheet that's always free on my website. And filling that in. But we're left with ourselves. Not with he made me do it, she made me do it, is what he said. What you know, all the things. How do how I react when I that I can have one more drink? You know how I treat people when I believe the thought and I I drink. Those of us that are asleep, we go on believing our thoughts, and we try to feel better by getting even, by addicting. This is alcoholism. These states of minds are drug addiction. These states are mind when we can't do something with our heads, with what we're thinking and believing. We'll do just about anything. We're angry. We're hurt. We blame. And then that just compounds our addictions. And how do we make it stop? Um, so many people tell me that our in 12-step programs, how this work supports their work to stay sober. So I'm glad you asked that. Yeah, and and I know so many people who that program has saved. When I have gone to different churches, there are a lot of articles in their books now about how people are leaving organized religion and people are identifying more as what's called a nun, that none of the above. I'm not... Uh, Jewish or Christian or Muslim or whatever. And it sometimes seems to me that 12 steps, I know the the good that that's done. I very often feel that when I've gone to church services, it's not providing me with the same kind of catharsis that some other kind of therapies, whether it's 12 steps in the way that that works, whether it's it's your work. I, I watch people be um, their spirits be leavened by the experience of being with you. That is so much more tangible and compelling to me than very often when I go to a church service 
And it's often a half-hearted performing of a ritual, but it's not having urgent meaning for people. And, and so I find myself looking for other things that do provide that more urgent and compelling cathartic experience. Let's say that some people experience what you just described and they're just not getting it, but then another person would go in and they hear it differently. And it's very meaningful. Stephen and I were in Boston and just right there on the Battery. And there's some just fabulous shops and, you know, it's on that, that trail of the mm -hmm. history. But we were walking by in the evening and I heard the music and it was a storefront that had been changed into a church. And I looked in the window and, and they were singing hymns and we went in and sat down and they gave us a hymnal, everything, they were so good. And then after the hymn, the minister started to preach. He was talking about Jesus, you know, who was perfect and loving and caring and the Son of God. And he was asking people, why would Jesus love you? Why would he love you? And people would raise their hands and come out of their experience. And I raised my hand and he said, why would Jesus love you and all people? And I said, because he just can't help it. <laughs> and you know, he, he, he looked kind of thrown in there and dazed as he contemplated that. But, but um, from experience, right mind just can't help it. And that is not a religion. That is who and how we are by nature. And the proof is, when you're thinking against that, it feels like stress, and it feeds the ego to the next, the next, the next, until sometimes we're depressed and just can't help it. Katie, do you meditate? It sounds a little weird, but... Um, on a more accurate, on, on, another question might be, is there ever a time when I don't, when I'm not? Are you in a state now that you've been doing this for, for, for so long and it's so ingrained and you've worked with so many people? When you wake up in the morning, do you, do you have to recharge yourself and remind yourself of, of this point of view or is it now just naturally who you are? Just naturally, who I am, how I am. It's it's like I I wake up in the morning doesn't require thoughts. It's like my life is I'm more let's say witnessing it. And I'm not the doer, so I'm fascinated. What am I doing? It's not that I live by road. It's that I just I'm loving what is. The movements, the the choices, the love, you know, the ground holds me. I mean, what what is that? You know, the I I look around and there's nothing out of order, other than what we're thinking and believing about life. There's something really beautiful going on. Let me uh, just. There are a couple of other questions that I ask everyone. That let me let me ask you if there were one work of art that you could have everybody experience you think it might be beneficial to them, not one of your own works or one of Stevens, what might that be? 
You know, what what I would love, the piece of art I would love them to see is to look in, to look into a mirror, drop their story, and fall in love. To drop their judgments and look and notice compassionately the one in the mirror that they see as themselves. Katie, do you ever think about what might exist for people after we die? Do you think that people are going to be judged? Like, um, for example, someone dies and we judge. Or, or, or that they go into a dimension where there is a judgment. Oh, then that would be earth. That, that you have often told people, you often tell people, you're in the hell now. That's what you're living out now. You know, um, if, if we died and went to heaven, where everything is perfect, everything is perfect, everything is beautiful, without exception, the problem is that everything you believed on earth, you believe in heaven. So where would you be? So my world is heaven, and the only hell is what I would be thinking and believing that I have attached to. That's believing. That's attachment. That would be my hell. You, I've heard you say, if I had a prayer, here's what it would be. I would love to, for us to, to conclude with that. If I had a prayer, Scott, it would be this. God, spare me from the desire to seek love approval or appreciation. Amen. And I thank you so much for this time. Oh, Scott, I'm just so pleased to sit here with you. It's always, it's always good. Thank you. Regular Yigan's listeners will know that I usually ask the same three questions at the end of every episode. Katie is the first Yigan's guest to turn the question, uh, what would she recommend to listeners to possibly be a transformative experience for them? Um, she's the first one to turn that question back to you, the listener. She bids us go deeper into ourselves to the origin of consciousness and the source of our suffering, which logically is what must be addressed if we're ever going to dissolve that suffering. We each need to start with the person in the mirror. A few weeks ago, I talked to her husband, author and translator Stephen Mitchell, and I was very interested by the feedback I got from that episode. I talked with Stephen about his years of arduous Zen Buddhist training, which to me sounded as tough as a Marine boot camp. And some people told me that they admired, they envied even, the serenity that he has found, but said that they would never want to endure what he's gone through, the fasts, the marathon meditations, the denial of personal indulgences, that he had to go through to get to this plateau that he's reached of patient, serene clarity. I'll be interested to see if the Katie episode gets the same kind of reaction. Uh, her joyousness, which I have witnessed firsthand for 17 years now, a mantra-like focus on what can be known to be true. And for many people, that kind of focus would just be too high of a price to pay. You know, I've been in show business most of my life, and I've known and worked with angry alphas whose achievements brought them fame and wealth, but no peace of mind. 
And as Michael Caine said at the end of Alfie, if you ain't got that, you ain't got nothing. So what's it all about? Well, in my homily opinion, whatever we have to do to tamp down the devils within us and elevate the angels is a price well worth paying. That's our show. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at yegodspodcast at gmail.com or on social media at yegodspodcast. Or why not post a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? Thanks to all ye gods and goddesses, Dossie McCraw, Robin Rose Valentine, Selena Lauder, and all of her lady archers at Artemis Independent. I'm Scott Carter, and until next time, safety and kindness to all. Mm-hmm.